You're listening to Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's podcast about science fiction in various media. In today's episode, we're proud to be able to podcast an hour-long interview with Lawrence Miles, an acclaimed writer of Doctor Who novels and various spin-off titles from the late 90s and early noughties. Miles will be talking about such titles as Christmas on a Rational Planet, appropriate for the timing of this podcast, his Bernie Summerfield novel Down, and his first novel for BBC Books, Alien Bodies, which featured the first mention of the Time War in Doctor Who, as well as the discovery of the Doctor's body on another planet, ideas which Stephen Moffat would reuse in the TV series. Miles went on to continue some of the themes of his Doctor Who novels, namely a Time Lord voodoo cult called Fraction Paradox, in a series of books of that name, first published by Mad Norwegian Press, and then continued by other publishers. Miles wrote the first novel in the Faction Paradox series, This Town Will Never Let Us Go, and edited subsequent volumes. To give you a flavour of This Town Will Never Let Us Go, here's an extract from my reading of the novel which was performed at an art event in South London last year, with musical accompaniment by Robin Warren, one half of the Radiophonic Workshop-inspired group HowlAround, and that will be followed by the interview with Lawrence Miles, conducted by Andrew Hickey, a critic from the blog The Mindless Ones. The continuity is all that matters. The information, where the atoms are in relation to each other, not where they came from. The conclusion that Tiffany has reached, and let's be horribly brutal, she's not the smartest one here, the conclusion is that for most of its awkward and long existence, the human species has been utterly unable to understand what it is, unable to realise that not a single one of its members has ever, ever been a complete discrete entity. Only now it's possible, only now in the age of videotape is there a way of understanding, of seeing the way that the self is copied and copied and copied and sometimes erased and sometimes overwritten, almost as if the VCR machine was invented purely as a model, a way of teaching children about life in the same way that pets teach them about death. Even if there's an obvious side effect, to start with, I'm not sure to what extent the people listening to this will actually know who you are. So the first thing I'd say is, the way I normally describe your writing is to say you're sort of a British equivalent of Kurt Vonnegut or Thomas Pynchon, a proper postmodernist author, except that you write Doctor Who-based novels. Can you perhaps explain to the listeners how it is you got into writing that particular kind of thing and why you think that's the best way for somebody with your talents and outlook to, to write? Well, firstly, the story of, of how I came to start writing Doctor Who novels is very, very boring because it entails... Well, basically, I was, I was writing for various magazines. I really like Doctor Who. I sent a submission to Virgin Publishing. And in those days, Virgin Publishing would look at everything that was sent to them, no matter yeah. how bleak it may have seemed. Famously, though, my submission had the rare distinction of being dropped down the back of a cupboard by Gareth Roberts. But, you know, well, you see, there are many versions of this myth. Uh, one of them says that he dropped my submission down the back of a cupboard. The other yeah. says that he was the one who recovered it from the back of the cupboard. From what I've been able to gather from people who actually worked at Virgin... The answer is both. 
Gareth Roberts was helping out, you know, Rebecca Levine, who was the editor of the Doctor Who books, and he reached behind a, a cupboard one day and went, "Oh yeah, uh, yeah." So basically, there was no uh, there was no way in. Doctor Who is my native mythology, if you like, and so when in the nineties we had a chance to write for it, I did. The first pitch I sent was Christmas on a Rational Planet. That was the one that got dropped in the back of a cupboard by Gareth Roberts, and then recovered a year later. Described by the completely useless encyclopedia as the one where the Doctor looks like Jasper Carrot yeah. and it's bright yellow. <laughs> it was a book about, it's set during, well, no, just in, in the aftermath of the uh, American Revolution. Because it struck me that although in the 1980s, Doctor Who was um, dependent on American science fiction for justification because especially well in the 1990s but when we had the tv movie everyone liked doctor who to be something like star trek the next generation or babylon 5 but we'd never actually dealt with the subject of american history because you know bbc productions don't tend to do that there's not you know they prefer to do 1066 so i wanted to do a doctor who story that was like um, an overall view of the american revolution but afterwards and that was also combined with uh, other things that were going on with the Age of Reason. And it was uh, massively overambitious, and, and um, it, it, uh, it got an awful lot of things wrong, to a degree that in many places are embarrassing, not just historically, but in terms of you know, the, the, the history of, of, of Western thought throughout the 18th century. But I'm glad I wrote it, because... Um, yeah, because it was massively overambitious. And, and, and otherwise, I wouldn't have, uh, have tried to do anything else. Describe things to artists. I actually drew a little picture of what I imagined the cover looking like because there's the golden sphere which reshapes space and time. And I said, no, that we've got like a clockwork claw holding the golden sphere and the doctor's ref- face reflected in it. That sounds really good. So I drew a little picture of it. The overliteralism of this, which, which puts the doctor's nose in the fore, it doesn't sort of pay much attention to the claw and... That was about the time that they were about to lose the license. And, and I wrote a Benny book that was Down. So that was its title. The review of Down in um, SFX mercilessly tore the book apart and its cover. And when I saw him take, it, saw them take apart the cover, I thought, yeah, you're wrong. Because it is beautiful, isn't it? It's a massive pink submarine that looks like a fish. It wasn't, it's not, it wasn't pink in the book. It's a, well, it's a warp submarine. The point is, it's a submarine that can get from world... Uh, that goes from world to world, not by going through space, but by emerging in their oceans. So it goes from world to world. It's a warp submarine. But I just described it as a submarine, and it's run by Nazis. It should be, it should be a black, sleek fish. Before I'd finished writing it, I got a call from Virgin, and went, um, the, uh, the, the artist made it. Could, could, you, could, could you have the submarine turned bright pink? But well, any particular... The artist has... It's a very nice cover, but the, the, the submarine has turned bright pink. Okay, yeah, I can do I can do chameleon colours on the stuff. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. It isn't is a Nazi fish, you know. It's it's a bright pink Nazi fish now, but yeah, fair enough. So uh, there it happened, and I think it's very good because it um, it, it 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 got the feel. It's supposed to be like a love and rockets, and that cover gets it right. Whereas the review in SFX did not get this. And then uh, and then I wrote Alien Bodies for the BBC, and and this is the thing. In 1997, the, the BBC uh, took over the Doctor Who line from Virgin because, you know, the TV movie became like, oh, hey, Doctor Who is going to be big again. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the Paul McGann TV movie never really went anywhere. And, and, to be honest, 
No, no disrespect to the BBC at all, but uh, the, I won't name her, but there's a very nice young lady who edited the first few Doctor Who books, and she didn't know a thing about Doctor Who, by her own admission. She was a very good editor, but she didn't know anything about Doctor Who, and she was good. So um, you're trying to reboot the Doctor Who line, and the first one is The Eight Doctors by Terence Dix, a book that can only be understood if you're completely aware of the entire history of Doctor Who, and yet was still advertised in daily newspapers. That was a mistake, and she didn't realise that was a mistake, because, you know, she, from a distance, that looks like, yeah, Terence Six, he knows more about Doctor Who than anybody. That's kind of the problem. So, I, I submitted a, a, a novel idea to the BBC called There Are Worse Things Than Angels, and I'm very glad that it got rejected, the reason it got rejected was because uh, it, it was all adult and everything. It was, oh, no, it was, it was basically a contemporary horror novel. But with, uh, what does that mean? It was a horror novel. But also, it was um, elsewhere, I'll, I'll be talking about uh, the influence that um, comic books had on the Doctor Who novels of the, of the 90s especially. And uh, basically, the idea I had was... You know, we, we have the unit stories in Doctor Who that are set in the 70s, but they're also quite... that they, they belong in that... And I mean it's in the nicest possible way, and it is no way an insult. Unit is a bit Dad's army, whereas by the late 70s, we were in the era of the professionals. So I thought, let's do a Doctor Who story that's like a unit story, except it's set in a world where the Sweeney and the professionals exist. And I actually had sort of... Well, well, I had character types that were like um, Reagan and Carter from the Sweeney. I remember proudly sending this off. And it was um, two days after that, I think, that I read the episode of Grant Morrison's Invisibles that did exactly the same thing. And I remember reading it thinking, oh, thankfully it was rejected because it was too adult. But, you know, there were some nice ideas in there. But, yeah, yes. And at that point they didn't want to do anything, you know, because, look, we're really watching this in the national papers. And so I thought about this and I thought, hmm, OK, so we can't do... It, it was it was sort of clear that at, at that point, this is, again, this this perfectly... She was really nice. I, just in case it seems like I'm saying that. I know I'm not saying that. Years later, when I went when I went to edit Interference at the BBC, she was uh, she was there in the office and she you know, and we got on really well. She was a lovely person, but she didn't know anything about Doctor Who. I thought, hmm, might this rather than being sort of incredibly conservative in Doctor Who, might this be the time to go in completely the other direction, just go completely off the rails? And so that's what Alien Bodies was about. So whereas I think a lot of people when they were submitting uh, the, the 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 novels to the BBC did things that were exactly like 70s Doctor Who stories. And a lot of people, because it was in the shadow of the Paul McGann TV special, were going, oh, who is the Doctor's, you know, half-human on my mother's side? <gasps> who is his mother? Who is his father? And I didn't give a toss about that. I don't want to know who the Doctor's mother and father is. And, you know, the editor they eventually put in, Stephen Cole, who, who you know, was the one who edited most of the... He didn't give a toss either, you know, to his credit. So, um... Rather than looking at this past thing, I went, let's just go into the future and see what's... So I wrote Alien Bodies. And in Alien Bodies, there's... um, The Doctor slips through a... Slips into the future of himself and the Time Lords, which you're not supposed to be able to do in the Doctor Who universe. And um, there's a time war going on. 
in which, which the Time Lords are losing. And uh, we, yeah, there's an enemy, and we never get to find out who the enemy is because, you know, I don't own the entire Doctor Who <laughs> universe, so it would be us. I had in my head who I thought the enemy would be, but I didn't. I didn't actually say it. There is, however, a yeah. There is a mention on one page of Alien Bodies where it said, "Well, yeah, the Dalek's are against someone serious now. It's not like the Daleks." So, 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 so when the Time War actually happened in the TV series, and Russell T. Davies said, "Well, of course, if you're going to have the Time Time Lords in a war, you want it to be the Daleks." No. Oh, right then. As long as you make them good Daleks, and they and the Daleks did get much better after that, of course, yes. However, my time war was not their time war, <laughs> and uh, I never, I never, um, I never said who the enemy was. But yeah, right. I'll say if you like, I'll tell you who the enemy is. Well, go on, anyway, as well. Yeah, you know what a rat king is. Yeah, and I think Alan Moore in the Ballad of Halo Jones had a rat king as being a yeah. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> Alex is nodding. He remembers. No, the enemy is a whale king. It's basically right. an awful lot of whales tangled together to make a <laughs> gestalt life form. If you believe that. Did I ever tell anybody? Because I honestly can't remember what I've told people at various times. You, you've never told anybody that I know of. If you've, if you've told anybody, they haven't told anybody else. What I wanted to do for the, my um, for what was going to be my last... I, I wrote Adventurous afterwards, after the entire universe changed. But what I was going to do with my last Doctor Who book was... Because everyone's going, oh, who's the enemy? I actually yeah. asked the BBC, is there any possibility that you can publish a book... In which, you know, it's just a normal book except one page, just one single page, has eight different versions and it depends which book you get. <laughs> yes. Seriously asked that. And, and, and they went, I, 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 I don't think this is a, I, I don't think this is a usual thing. I, I know it's not usual, but could just one or two, just seriously, just one page is a, yeah. because you can imagine if, yeah, because I had... I had a list of things which might be the... None of them were good enough to actually be the enemy. Yeah. There was eight that were almost good enough. And just yeah. the idea to have a load of different people... Well, I didn't see that cut. And then the other one went, well, no, I didn't see that. Sorry, what are you talking about? <laughs> that would have been the best thing that's ever happened in Doctor Who. If you just eight different solutions and nobody knows which one they've got... It's a bit like yeah, that, opening that, a packet wonderful. of trading cards. So I had eight different versions of who the enemy was. I did actually have a version of who the enemy was when I wrote Alien Bodies. Then, you know, different things happened and moods changed and it seemed... So I came up with seven other good ones and, you know... One yeah. of them was it was going to be a whale king. <laughs> that's one of the eight, but, you know, yeah. there are going to be seven others. I'm just trying to think, think of the, the best way to put this. Most of your early writing was for the Doctor Who universe, if you like. But later on, you created your own Faction Paradox work, which is partly connected to Doctor Who, but partly not. What was it that really prompted you to go from to go from writing the Doctor Who novels to writing your own thing, but, but, but still connected to them? I think it's true to say that an awful lot of people who are writing the Doctor Who novels in the 1990s were inspired by the comic books of the age because we'd had the uh, the Brit pop explosion in comics. We'd had Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and so forth, 
an awful lot of people who wrote the books in the 90s had been reading those. And if you look back at the new adventures now, you realise it was us trying to do Doctor Who like that because we felt that was modern. In some ways... It occasionally got a bit embarrassing. Yeah. You'd use the same imagery and the same, you know, and you yeah. can see where our roots were and you can see us. However, at the same time, we, a lot of it, we, we, we did like this whole shared universe thing. So when, um, you know, in that, in that period of the interregnum, where there was no Doctor Who on TV, we just liked making little universes of our own. And the Faction yeah. Paradox University it was a spin-off from the... Some, yeah, it has been said, and I think truthfully, it was a spin-off of a spin-off. Possibly, yeah. depending on how you see it, you could call it a spin-off of a spin-off of a spin-off. However, it was, it was all about making... Do you know, it, it, I, th- I think it says a lot about the last uh, 30 years of popular culture, that if I'd been saying this not so long ago, I'd have been saying, oh, it's about creating our own worlds. It's like, screw worlds. Worlds all we can do. No, I think we can do better than worlds. I'll go ga- no, I'll go better than galaxies. I'll do universe. I'll do entire timelines of universes. And there was that kind of spirit in the air throughout the 90s and, and the early 2000s. And so that's why I did Faction Paradox, because it was like, this can be my own sort of expanding universe that's based on something close enough to Doctor Who that people who like Doctor Who will get it, but doesn't have to depend on it. Because it's, yeah. you know, it is a more... I'm not going to say a more mature thing because that would be rubbish. And I'm not going to get to, oh yeah, but it's more dark because I hate people who say dark. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, But it's a more, you could explore pieces of history that Doctor Who on television wouldn't maybe go. Yeah, Liz Halliday wrote one about uh, the Boxer Rebellion. The sheer brutality of that you couldn't do in a TV Doctor Who story. Even in the books, it might have sat a bit Oddly, if it's but yeah, we could do that in the faction paradox books with with a plot because yeah, because the faction paradox isn't based on characters who you're necessarily meant to like. Whereas, yeah. at least until recently, I would throw my throw my hat into the ring on the Doctor's side at every opportunity. Whereas, yeah. the Doctor, I can say is a fiercely moral character. Faction paradox doesn't have moral characters, and it wasn't it wasn't a celebration of that, but it was about history. It was about history and about how unpleasant history can be. And so none of the characters were necessarily bound to morality that I would agree with. None of them were necessarily bound to the way yeah, BBC the, the BBC did or should make family entertainment. And they could yeah. be awkward and sometimes very, you know, very barbarous indeed and sometimes awful. I, th- I think the one thing I can say about this, some of the... Actually, no, all of the books were... Damn it, all of the books were good. What am I talking about? <laughs> all of the books, when I edited them, were good. They, well, they were the degrees of good. Some of them were absolutely superb, and some of them were... Yeah, that's, that's quite good. They were all good, but what I think you can say about them is that it never mollycoddled the audience by saying, Ah, you see, ah, you see, ah, look, you see, but he's an anti-hero, yeah. so maybe he's going to do something immoral. Ah, you know, no, you know he's maybe do, going to do something immoral because he fits in, he or she fits into that part of history. And that's where yeah. we did those kind of things. So it was basically using the, the kind of universe you see in Doctor Who to tell stories that you probably couldn't and shouldn't actually tell in Doctor Who. That's you know, and, and I think we did. Uh, I think we did very well. Certainly, you know, I I uh, I, I must apologise because I don't. Uh, I no longer edit the Faction Paradox range. No, but I've got to say the 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 first few novels that we put out, they were bloody great. If if I may use this for advertising, Phil Purser Hallard's of the City of the Saved. 
I mean, yeah, what, that's what, a wonderful book. I mean, it is. Uh, it, it's like it's it's a bit like Ian M. Banks. It's a bit like Jose Philip Farmer. It's a bit it's it's a bit Doctor Who. It's a bit of everything, and it works beautifully. Yeah, it, it's one of my favourite novels, The City of the Saved. Okay, I am going to blow my own trumpet here because I think I was quite a good writer of the Doctor Who books, but as an editor, I, I really, really came into my mind. Phil Purser Hallard wrote what was basically an eight out of ten book, and I and I said no, do that bit different, do that bit different, and turn it into nine out of ten book. I am possibly more proud of the of the fact that I edited of the City of the Saved than I am of any of the books I actually wrote myself. Because although I wrote a lot of books that I think, looking back, are quite good, that was the book which was already good. And I can't say that I can't say about my own books anyway, really, because I look at them now and I go, yeah, I could do that better now and that, but yeah. I think that, that is my proudest achievement. Personally, I'd, I'd say, actually, that this town is at least as good as the City of the Saved. But um, I, can, I can exactly see where you're coming from. Yes, it's, it's always good to to improve somebody else's work with, with a few suggestions. To those in Radio Land, he's talking about my book, This Town Will Never Let Us Go, which is the first Faction Paradox novel, because I wrote it myself, The Start of the Range. And it is it was written in 2004, and it is the most 2004 book you will ever read. <laughs> if you read that book, it couldn't have been written in any other year one year one you couldn't have written that book in 2003 you wouldn't have written that book in 2005 as a historical object i quite like it but it's not yeah all right i still think it stands it stands up very well i've never heard any of my audio the only orders i've written i put the scripts online ages ago for the for the bbv ones there's loads of bits missing from the script oh, apparently yeah. i don't have copies because that was two computers ago but if you if you go on to if you go somewhere online and say does anyone have the scripts for the bbv that Faction parallels, or yeah. you can read what they were supposed to be like, and then yeah. The reason the Sutek ones are better is because Alan Stevens actually stuck to the script. You know Geb Sutek's dad in the Faction Barrett, yeah. You know David Bradley who played William Hartnell. Geb was supposed to be David Bradley. That's what Geb was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Sutek, this like will basically well spoken Southerner. It was supposed Geb was supposed to come on and say, "You little." Bastard. And yeah, now Edward de is a good actor, but no, it was supposed it was specifically supposed to be like a class thing because you know you have this rough primal god versus the one who's not, yeah I am Sutek yeah it's like who is going to face Sutek I am your I'm your dad that's what it was supposed to be like. You, you were talking about. The, the way that the culture of the 1990s and early 2000s affected Faction Paradox. Now, one of the things in the Faction Paradox books particularly is you seem, and your most recent blog post seems to back this up, you seem to have a distaste for 21st century culture, or at least 21st century popular culture. A, a lot of Faction Paradox seems to be about the idea that culture has taken a wrong turning sometime around the turn of the millennium. Can you perhaps expand on your thoughts about that a bit? Hmm... I, I, well, the trouble is I can't expand about that for hours and hours on end. I haven't written anything in... Well, I haven't written a book anyway, or anything of that of, of that size, or, or, you know, to me, importance. <clears throat> I haven't written anything like a book in nine years, and the reason is I, I have just run out of... I just have run out of hope. That sounds like I'm making a big joke of it, doesn't it? I'm, no, I'm not. I genuinely feel that we've... When I was younger... And I mean, yeah, okay, young enough to be stupidly optimistic, but also yeah. into my sort of 20s and 30s when I was old enough to be 
hmm, understanding how things actually work, but still optimistic. We believed in a future that I don't think we really believe in now. It does strike me that everything that's happened over the last, say, ten, well, since about the turn of the century has been about just making do, just getting by. Yeah. Yeah, we'll take this and nothing else. I, it's not just that I remember from when I was younger that I seem to remember, weren't we actually heading for, well, we're actually trying to make the world a better, you know, weren't we, weren't we going for some kind of utopia there? Yeah. Because you can put that down to, you know, youthful ignorance. But looking back on it, no, there was an entire culture throughout the 20th century. Of In the mid-2000s, I... I was going to say I started seeing a therapist, but they made me say, ooh, yeah, like, like, like they did in New York in the 80s. No, I actually started seeing NHS, uh, you know, mental health stuff. Um, I was diagnosed with um, what they call severe social phobia, which is why I don't get out very much these days, and which is why, you know, I, I, I've been getting out less and less. And, and I, can't, I spent a long time thinking that it was just me because I'm retreating into this very scared paranoid slightly well you know i'm not clearly i'm not mad or anything but i am a bit it can be a bit intense i i am on the autism spectrum not only on the you know on the low yeah. end of it and, and and i thought this this is clearly just me because this is you know that time everybody reaches when they head toward middle age when they think god yes you know the world just isn't the way it was anymore and then i realized no because the world was rubbish when I was younger. The yeah. difference was we actually believed it was going to get better. Yeah. And that belief that seems to be, and you know, looking back at all history and literature and popular culture that's gone on in the last century, everybody had that until yeah. about the last ten years. Part of it, and this is this is the controversial part, and you know, you 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 may wish to put this aside, but part of it is the fact that. After the World Trade Center was came down, yeah, there was, I think, a genuine terror of doing anything at all in case it upset something. I don't think it was yeah. unconscious. I think there was a sense in everybody in the Western world that Tony Wilson, who you know, Factory Records, and, and yeah. was in charge of Joy Division. Well, not in charge of, but you know, yeah. started off Joy Division, New Order. You used to say that, oh, yes, of course, in this country we have a 13-year cycle and we had the teddy boys and we had the punks and we have it, and it'll happen again. But in when when something like that happens and there's a major catastrophe, though it's certainly that we see it in our society, when something like that happens, everybody retreats in terror. Yeah. And some, suddenly, suddenly we don't want to take risks. Suddenly we don't want to do... We don't want to push forward towards the future. We want to retreat into our bunkers. Yeah. If there was a, if there was an actual war, in in our generation, like the First World War or the Second World War, in the aftermath of war, there is a need to to, to find the future. Yeah. It was the, uh, yeah. The First World War saw, after the First World War came some of the greatest reforms of the twentieth century. After the Second World War, certainly in this country, we had yeah. many things which. It's got to be said, whether whether you're left wing or right wing, Churchill tried to win the election after World War Two by saying, "Ah, oh, you know, you know, if that Labour gets into power, they'll have a Gestapo." And what he yeah. realised was that everybody in the country 
actually wanted some kind of change, even people who liked him. And he yeah. didn't understand that change was the reason that we fought World well, we fought World War Two. I'm not going to absolutely. That there, there, after a war, there is a need for change, and it's as if it's as if in this last half generation, we've been stuck in a world that that didn't have the war it needed, perhaps, or that, that no, that thinks it's in a war, but will never yeah. actually come out of that war enough to want to change things. We have no war to define us. We have yes. belief that a war is going on. I know you can just put it down in nostalgia, but like I say, I don't actually hanker after the past. The past was rubbish. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. My God, the 70s and 80s were horrible in many ways. But there is a sense that we could have, we should have been heading for a future. And yes. we've stopped heading for a future. We no longer believe the future exists. Yeah. And I said to, to my, yeah, pardon me, therapist, actually social worker. By the way, I no longer have a social worker because, you know, cuts. I remember saying to my social worker, it's, I, I would rather, I would honestly rather live in Victorian Britain than this one. And I know how yeah. awful that is because I am entirely aware of how god evil the victorian era was oh absolutely yeah it's an entire society living in the shadow of the workhouse the filth and squalor that most of the population was subjected to but for for a middle-class git like me the fact is people like us still believed in a future then if i was back there i could still argue no we are going to do this because the next generation and the next generation after that and the next generation after that will be better for this. And I can't say that now because I sound like either a mental or massively naive. Do you understand the point I mean? It's not. I absolutely understand the, the point you mean. I think it has to do a, a lot with the, the idea of the, the end of ideology and the end of history. We live in a post-ideological society. We live in a society based on consensus. If there's nothing in the popular culture that suggests an alternative to to the way the way we are now. I mean, even back yeah. in the 80s, you'd have... There was a Cold War going on. There was at least another side there. The other side were totalitarian pricks, but at least there were two options, you know. Even beyond that, there were people in... in and, I, you know, I was a teenager at the time, but there were an awful lot of people who were uh, British socialists who, were, who, who had nothing but contempt quite rightly for the soviet union but was still prepared to actually fight if not with you know actual physical force and certainly to stand there and be hit by riot batons this is not something that any longer exists we've we've taken it as read that oh yeah of course we generally believe that for example environmentalism is a good thing unfortunately we are so pacified that we're not actually going to do anything about it yeah, we all fall off the cliff, and this, and this is true not not just for you know on on a global stage, but even within society. Our our economy can't stand this. Within Britain, no, our economy is not going to be able to do this indefinitely before something very bad happens. What what are our options? There is no. We are too comfortable, and we are too comfortable believing that. Only extremists think otherwise. Well, not only extremists. People say, oh, of course, you know, capitalism was, was one. What, because you can get cheap DVD players? Sorry, did you just want to go over to Africa and see what capitalism is actually doing there in terms of mass human death? 
yeah. actually want to see what capitalism is going to do to the entire fabric of the world before the end of this century. Yeah, if well, yeah, probably capitalism has won. It's a pyrrhic victory, though, isn't it? And there is no, I. If if I were as strong as my convictions, if I as a human being were that strong, what I would do is I and I, I mean this in all seriousness. This shows to you the difference between what I actually believe and what I'm capable of doing as a human being. I would start a cult. I honestly would. I would yeah. start a cult and I'd draw thousands of people do, to me to prepare for, for the massive crisis to come so that when it happens, we could act like a Knight's Hospital movement in, a, in an attempt to keep the human species alive and rectify some of the damage. I yeah. Yeah. do that because not only am I very weak, I'm also very bad at lying. Yeah. To start a cult, you have to be able to say to people, no, trust in me. I don't even trust in myself. That is essentially what I would really like to do. Because yeah. I think that is the best thing any genuinely decent person could do now is to start some kind of underground, not like American survivalist cults with all their guns and their, oh, there's going to be a war. No, there isn't going to be a war. There's going to be actually something worse. The entire planet's going to be a meltdown. Start telling people there's going to be a meltdown. Start, start learning uh, basic, it's not even first aid, how to deal with people who are developing early onset skin cancer. Start forming organisations of your own. Be a sort of an anti-militia, if you like. That is what I would do. However, you know, I can't, I, I can't, I can't make anyone trust me. And I have just realised that just as an, as, as, as an added uh, epitaph to this about you, yeah, I've been speaking that passionately to a massive brush on the end of a stick. And I've got... <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, no, listen, Andrew, the thing is, you know there's a little, like, tag sticking out of the brush? Because of the, the angle I'm sitting at, you can't see this. I've, for, the, for this entire interview that you've been talking to me, I've because I can see it from above and it looks like a triangle, I actually thought it was a beak. And I thought this was genuinely, your microphone was genuinely, like, disguised as a fluffy little, you know, fluffy little black duck. And I've just realised, no... It is actually a microphone, and the impassioned <laughs> argument I've been making to the fluffy little duck doesn't even work on a fluffy little duck level. So, so there you go. I suppose you could argue that if I want to write about something, something that I care about, I could write a handbook which said, oh yeah, or, or not even a handbook, a novel of some description that said, oh yes, uh, yeah, yes, this, this, is, this, is, uh, this is what you want to do. You want to form this group and then... Uh, but if I did that, I'd be L. Ron Hubbard. And I don't, I don't... It's not just that I don't want power for myself, because I hate all forms of power. I really do. I, can, I know I've said this before, but you know, I, I, I hate people inflicting power on me. I hate having it. It's just a really rotten, nasty thing to do to someone. You know, I could write a book that said, Ah, now, you yes, start cults now. Oh, look, this is a work of fiction. But... We have to bear in mind that very, very small things that you say in science fiction, and I'm not going to pretend that I have any, you know, great gravitas as a science fiction writer, but it has to be said that if Heinlein hadn't written Stranger in a Strange Land, then Charles Manson wouldn't have done that, I don't think. 
I think it is a direct, I think there is a direct causal thing there. And that is not blaming Heinlein at all. I don't like him very much, but, you know, you you can't, the, the whole of World War One and thereafter the entirety of 20th century history happened because Kaiser Wilhelm wrote a book called The Importance of Sea Power in uh, 19th Century Europe. And, you know, the guy who wrote that had no malicious intentions at all. But, you know, but, you know Heinlein wrote that and Charles Manson modelled his family on it. That's why Charles Manson called his kid Valentine, because after the character in the book. I don't want to be a cult leader even by accident. I hate even accidental power. I don't want to, yeah. So, yes, I could do that. I'm trying to think where we where we can go from there. Um, yeah. I mean, that's fasc- absolutely fascinating stuff. And I, I must say, I agree with about ninety percent of what you just said. Some of it is a bit messianic, and some of it is a bit cynical. These two things don't usually, you know, either you get someone who's messianic or they're cynical. It's a bit like uh, it's, I'm, I'm I'm a bit like the failed bullseye prize of writers. It's oh, but let's look what you could have won. <laughs> the last but one time I did any kind of interview. Someone I know who was on the internet, because I wasn't even on the internet in those days. My God, that was a long time ago. Uh, I was, wasn't was on the internet. He was. And I said, do, do you want to ask people to send questions? And, and he did. And, you know, bit of yeah. the results. One of them had to be taken down for legal reasons. So it isn't always a good idea. One question that people kept saying is, do you, do you have any plans to write anymore? Which I know you sort of answered there by saying that basically you've sort of lost hope. But at the same time, you've been doing stuff like, for example, The Best of Sherlock Holmes, which I, I loved the first story you did for that. Do you have any plans to do any more of that at all? I, I think the answer to that is, yes, I do see myself writing something else in the future because I can't help it. Ultimately, you know, however much I say, oh, I've lost hope. And it's true, I don't want to... I don't, I don't want to get involved in most of the world that surrounds writing on, on any level. However, I do just... I, just, I do make stuff all the time. <laughs> I still get yeah. ideas all the time and I, and I draw cartoons all the time and I do, you know, I like, I like making things. <laughs> I, uh, yes, my, uh, yes. I live, with a, I live with a modeler and he likes, uh, you know, he, he, he likes building small things for Doctor Who figures to, to move around. So that's, yeah. But... Ultimately, because I'm not a modeler, yes, I do. I do keep. I, I do want to write things. I just I find it hard to care enough. That that's all. But I, you know, and and I've got to say, I'd rather write for television though. I'd rather write for you know. I'd rather write small, low-budget dramas on BBC Four. That is my. That is honestly my ideal world. That is what I would like to do as a job. I don't. I think every. This has been repeated through the years by writer after writer after writer after writer. They, you know, they're asked, "Do you enjoy writing?" No, I enjoy having written. Absolutely true. You know, there are many things I've written that I'm very, very proud of, but I hate actually doing it. What I really, really like doing is writing scripts, and I don't want to write the kind of scripts that um, that sell these days. I want to write basically theatre scripts for television. That's why I was talking about the BBC Four thing. You know, that is my ideal job. That is my ideal world. <laughs> so um, I would never write another Faction Paradox novel. I would not do that because, you know, Faction Paradox has its own life now. If someone else is editing it, and you know, good luck to them. But then I'd, I'd, I'd have to write a completely original novel, wouldn't I? Starting from zero. Which is okay because that's what I'd do anyway. So that was a pointless point for me to bring up i apologize but um yeah i would i would i would 
I have loads of ideas for novels, but I don't care. I would like to write for television, but it's yeah. difficult to know what, because do you know, it, it, is, it is terribly easy writing for television. I don't mean it's terribly easy getting into television. I mean, it's terribly easy writing yeah. television. Do you have any idea? How, so, so, so a friend of a friend told, do you know how much you get paid for an episode of Hollyoaks? It's more than I used to get paid for a whole book. It's yeah. Like yeah. an hour of dribble. You could just, yeah. Well, it is. Yeah. You could just, you know. <laughs> I would quite like to write for television, but you know, I'd quite like to write the kind of television I would like, and that's not yeah. necessarily. Do you know what? Do you know what we we really need? What a, a couple of years ago, BBC Four, I think. Yeah, I think it, actually it was about a year and a half ago. BBC Four announced that they were not going to be uh, putting much of their money into drama because yeah. you know, they've they've got established as a documentary tra- channel. They're drama. Yeah. No, exactly what I think we need right now. My favourite television programme of all time is I, Claudius. And I know that you know that, because, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Do you have any idea how cheap that would be to make these days? The reason it was considered a a high-class television programme in the 70s is because even that level of camera technology in the 70s still took a massive chunk out of your budget. These, yeah. You could do that with something that someone can hold in their hand. You just need to pay the actors. Very good actors. Yeah. Especially I, Claudius. But what BBC4 should be doing, in my opinion, and I honestly believe this as a viewer, as well as yeah. someone who would like to write it, admittedly, you know, I've got a vested interest, but I would like to see it as well as write it. I want to see BBC4 do proper dramas again, shot on video, yeah. yes. with special effects. Yeah. yeah. Plays for television, which is what the BBC was always fantastically good at. Absolutely. BBC4 is the channel that not only is perfectly equipped to do that, the viewers of BBC4 sort of want them to do that. Absolutely. The the, the number of times you see those uh, classic programmes repeated on BBC4, and they have no problem with it at all. Let's do that again. Let's do theatre for TV. I the reason I don't really want to write for television as much as, you know, I would have thought I would have done 10, 15 years ago is that TV, TV is like movies now. I don't want to write movies. I yeah. want yeah. to write theatre for TV. I want to do, Absolutely. you know, it may be overly worthy, but yes, I'm quite happy to do the Wednesday play. I am more than happy to take on the new I, Claudius. I don't think we should attempt a sequel, though. That's going too far. But you know what I mean. I want to see programmes like that, and I want to write programmes like that. I think BBC4 changed its policy because, uh, you know, Dirt Gently's Holistic Detective Agency did not take off in quite the way they maybe had planned as a cult series. But yeah, but that's not really a drama, is it? That's a kind of comedy drama with uh, with, with, with famous comedies. Well, yeah. Yeah. comedy stars. It's not really the same thing. That's, that is my plea. Let us do proper televised theatre on BBC Four. Yeah, and that is what I, I would like to do. I would love to see that again. People who don't read your blog won't remember this, but the, but the thing you did about how Red Dwarf changed over the years, and the, the way that started us done on you know, on a couple of sets and dialogue heavy multi camera. Yeah, Red, Red Dwarf started as Steptoe and Sun in Space. Yeah, By the time it um, went to season six, it thought it was Star Trek: The Next Generation with jokes, and then when it um, finally got film looked. Again, film look is the criminal here. Serious, I'm, I'm, I am absolutely. I, I've said this to people, and they assume I'm joking. But you know how uh, they say that the big changes in British television are 
Hancock's half hour because yeah. that's yeah. when they figured out how to edit. Yeah. The change from the number of lines, oh, is it 625? I think one of the biggest changes that future historians of TV, should there be any, we hope, will look at is the invention of film look because that will change the way we see drama. From that Absolutely. point on, people, will, uh, people in television see drama series as being like films but slightly smaller. Yeah. Than like theatre but slightly bigger. And there is a massive gulf there, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, to be honest, I, I can't think of anything that I would call drama to have come out of British TV since about about the time that Film Look came in, really. I'm pretty sure there's an exception to that, and, I, and I've forgotten what it is. But I thought of one thing that actually did it properly. No, I can't remember. This may seem slightly self-indulgent, yeah, under the circumstances, but given that you are doing uh, an interview that started with Doctor Who things, you notice that Doctor Who came back to BBC One. And then Torchwood came back to BBC Three, maybe, and yeah. Yeah. BBC got the Sarah Jane Adventures. BBC Four doesn't have anything, does it? Did it ever strike you that you know what I just said about you about? Uh, wouldn't it be nice if someone did a series that was like an old-fashioned shot-on-video drama? If there was something in the Doctor Who universe like that for BBC Four, given that they like showing the Hand of Fear and you know, occasionally, I'm just putting that out there, you know. My, that's my dream job. Yes. Writing the, the BBC4 Doctor Who spin-off, that's what I was born to do. Although they'd probably give the job to Gary Russell or someone, but... Oh, not on BBC4. My, yeah, I was born about 20 years too late. I should have been around in the 1980s as an adult arguing with, with Dennis Potter. That's yes. What yes. That singing detective is great. What are you doing, man? It's just, it's just a bit late for that kind of thing now. I, 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 was, I was just born a bit, bit late to do that properly. Is there anything in modern culture that you would actually recommend to people? Uh, somebody said you'd recommended a BBC radio show called Pilgrim, for example, and is there anything else like that that you would recommend people seek out? Well, now, I have to say, there's a current series of Pilgrim on, on Radio 4, and I have to say, Pilgrim is not perfect. It's one of those things that I quite like, but, you know, I could script edit it better. Sebastian Vod... Oh, I'm sorry. His name is much too complicated. It's written by a very good Radio 4 writer called uh, Sebastian. Very long name, probably Polish. Afraid I can't pronounce it, so, you know, my apologies. However, it does need script editing. However, he is the kind of person I would develop for a writer, you know, for, I don't know, for for a TV series, if I were writing a fantasy TV series, I would you know I'd call yeah. them and say, "Why well, do you want to do something like this?" Yes. Uh, however, the the very best thing I have uh, seen or heard in the media was um, uh, good old Radio Four Plus recently repeated the complete smiley. It is absolutely fantastic. It is the best. Uh, it, it is okay. Everybody knows now the, the, the two versions of uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the TV one yeah. and the film one. You say, oh, of course I prefer the TV one. I've got, the film did something very clever. No, the radio one is the best one. The version of um, um, yeah, 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 the spy who came in from the cold. in the com- yeah. It's got Brian Cox, not the professor, the actor. Cox, Zach Lemus. And Ruth Gemmell as the female lead. You cannot get better than that. 
it's yeah. perfect in every well okay it drags a bit in the middle but they do did have to make it exactly three hours but you know what i mean it's yeah. yeah. just done superbly it is beautiful some episodes of this are, are by the time this is uh broadcast or you know webcast or whatever some episodes will still be on the uh still be on the iplayer Right. Recommend them absolutely. The Complete Smiley is one of my favourite series ever. Radio right. Right. it again. There you go. It is wonderful. I I want to be a scriptwriter in another time. That is basically my ideal. That is my ideal point. That's actually not very impressive, isn't it? If I had even the you know a third of the courage of my convictions, I'd be able to be able to get over that. If I had real strength, what I'd do is I'd overthrow the whole of the inter... Yeah, I'd write something for the BBC which is irresistible to them and then overthrow them all. Say, no, no, I'm going to bang this table next to the microphone. No, I would say. And then, did you get it? No, I would say. And then I would, and then, and then I would say, no, you will make proper, proper drama on, on, on BBC4 for a niche audience. And I will write that. And then I would go into retirement. Now the question's been asked, you know, is there is there is there anything in modern culture you like? I've got to say, I am I am sort of no. I, I, I'll put it this way: if you ask someone who would they like to be, when you ask them that, depending on what age they are, they will tell you different things. If you ask them when they're eight years old, they will say, "Well, okay, this this is a boy response." Fair enough. If you ask them, ask a boy who's eight. Probably, you know, an astronaut with uh, magic powers. Or, you know, or an astronaut riding on a dinosaur, you know, at the very least. Magic, ma- magic power to, to bring back dinosaurs. Or, you know, some sort. I do really want to be George Smiley, don't I? I'm sorry, I hadn't realised that before now. No, that's absolutely what I want. I want to be exactly like George Smiley, except instead of the obsession with German literature, with an obsession with uh, classic science fiction. That's what I'd like to be. The George Smiley of sci-fi. I'm not, of course, because I'm much too angry. Why? Why is it you delete so many of your older blog posts? Because uh, I see my blog, and also more more relevant now, perhaps my Twitter stream is being like my garden, and I could put something up in it and go, "Oh, I don't know, I look like the way that looks." I'll take yeah. it down yeah. again, especially on the blog, because I do. I'm afraid I do have a. Although I don't have a bad temper in the way that I've ever actually hit someone, I do get, I do get really angry. And I go, how can you... Blah, blah, blah. And I write <laughs> a very angry blog post, and I wake up the next morning and I think, I don't want to be that person. Yeah. <laughs> so I take it down. And something, you know, there was a... there was what, I think the most important one recently was after, uh, after the anniversary special. There, there was a thing I posted which was a screen cap of someone who'd favorited my tweet and it was just my god this is what doc being a doctor who fan means now i'm not i'm not going to refer to the young lady's name but it was horrible and it had the word n- in it yeah and i thought and 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 i i put it cuz i was just so angry and thought and i woke up the next morning and i thought yeah but <laughs> i i would rather just i want to like th- i really do want to like things you know i get angry at things but i, do, I go overboard and i think Oh, just no, I'll, I'll stop that. I don't want to. I, I don't want to go on record as being that, you know. So we'll take it away. And this happens, you know, with my tweets. It's not just anger. And I, I write something incredibly stupid, instant. I think, why did I? No, I don't want that. It's like um, 
Yeah, I, th I, th I think the answer I would give to anyone who says, why do I delete things is, uh, imagine you own a garden, but you're also the cat in that garden. Sometimes you do a poo on the grass, and then you want to bury it. And that's, yeah. So I will continue to, you know, I will continue to delete things from, you know, that I've tweeted when I think, oh, no, that's too strong. I, I shouldn't have gone there. That, that's horrid. I don't want to be a nasty person. I know it seems weird, but I've said many awful and terrible things about people because, especially, you know, when, when I used to go to the tavern, I, I have said terrible, no, actually inexcusable things about, you know, Doctor Who writers of the period. Not the yeah. Not just the kind of things I say now, you know. I'm happy to. Well, you know who I think is rubbish, and I'm happy to say that. But no, I just. And the reason is because it's like um, when you live in a small fish tank, and everybody makes you think you're a shark, so yeah. you become massively overconfident. And I've just said horrible things to them. And I thought, why did I stop this? I hate power. Power is horrible. That's another reason that I yeah. Because I, I hate, I hate, I hate being subject to it. And I hate having it. I scream yeah. whenever anyone calls me sir in the bank. That's yeah. That was something I was actually going to ask. Sort of related to that. How, how do you feel about the the way that people perceive you on the internet as opposed to how you are? Because, because I, I, I don't look. I have, you know, I've said that I, I delete things which I think I've gone too far. But at the same time, I have to accept that yeah, they are what I secretly think. And the yeah. reason I think I can, the reason I think I can get away with that is because I never interfere in anybody else. I never go on any news groups because that. Yeah. If I went and went, ha ha ha, this is me, and look, I'm a, I used to be a writer in the 1990s. Yeah, I wrote <laughs> that book there. I can, yeah. So I never ever go on news groups ever, and I never look at them. So yeah, right. there are a lot of people who go, oh look, that Lawrence Mullins is off again, and I know this because uh, they send those. Those messages to me personally, and I stop. <laughs> However, you know, I only ever put my opinions on my website, and even though I take a load of them down because I think, oh no, no, I've gone too far there. Even though I do that, the fact is, I never put them anywhere else. So yeah. if you yeah. go to that site, you must at least expect that I will have gone too far there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never, I've never enticed anyone in. I've never gone on anybody else's news group and gone, oh, have a look at my. No, it's there. Yeah. It's you, you know what's there. It's yeah. It might be over. It might be over the line, and I, 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 I will later, if not apologise, and then at least shuffle into a corner and pretend I didn't say it. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and thanks, thanks so much for doing this. I'll see you later on Twitter. Lawrence Miles' novel, This Town Will Never Let Us Go, as well as various volumes of Faction Paradox that he edited, are still available from Mad Norwegian Press. Also, half a dozen of the Faction Paradox audio plays are available from Magic Bullet Productions. And to give you a flavour of these, here's an extract from The True History of Faction Paradox, Volume 1. The point is that the Mediterranean's been an oasis of civilization for almost as long as civilizations existed. Mediterranean, the middle of the earth. Did it ever occur to you that we might be close to the middle of history as well? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I think... I think I understand. Oh, well, you would. Think. For years, the great houses of Europe and the Near East have been fighting over this one stretch of water. But what if there are greater houses at work here? Beyond all the kings and sultans we know about, 
forces who've been fighting over this part of history the same way our own people have been squabbling about the borders and the shipping routes. Oh, that's ridiculous. Like your story about the Mal'ak. Uh, then you're suggesting that this faction paradox... Is one of these greater houses? Gentlemen... I put it to you that the Society of Sigismondo de Rimini has a reason and a duty to take an interest in this great ape of yours. As a long-standing member, I therefore propose that we consult those more knowledgeable than ourselves. Are we agreed? Uh, I suppose we could contact England. No need. We meet at my home, two hours after dawn tomorrow morning, at which point we summon Faction Paradox. Andrew Hickey's excellent essays on Doctor Who can be found on the Mindless Ones blog, themindlessones.com, where you can also order copies of a collection of the essays, as well as his look at Grant Morrison's title, Seven Soldiers of Victory. Lawrence Miles's blog can be found at beasthouse-lm2.blogspot.co.uk. An example of his most recent writing at homesbestiary.blogspot.co.uk That's H-O-L-M-E-S-B-E-S-T-I-A-R-Y dot blogspot.co.uk And various faction paradox novels by Miles can be found at madnorwegian.com Reality Check was recorded by Alex Fitch and Andrew Hickey, was edited by Alex Fitch, and you can find all previous episodes at sci-fi-london.com-podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please listen to the companion podcast, Novelising Doctor Who, which was an episode of Booklist, which can be also found on my blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, and features interviews with Terence Dix, Paul Cornell, Jenny Colgan, Tommy Dombervand and Mark Platt, mainly recorded at the Sci-Fi London Festival earlier this year. The next Sci-Fi London will be taking place early summer 2014, and for more information about that, please go to sci-fi-london.com. Thanks for listening.